Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving resources. Join the ripple effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Today, you can be a reporter on Air Talk. I welcome you sharing what you're seeing in your neighborhood or what you've seen on your commute, even if you're out driving now, what you're experiencing on the roads with the record-setting rain that we saw overnight and into this morning throughout Southern California. Our phone number for you to share what you're seeing is 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. But I want to hear from you what you're seeing. We've, of course, uh, been hearing about and seeing the debris flow in Studio City up in the Hollywood Hills on Lockridge Road, where there have been a, a number of homes that have been damaged there. But joining us just to talk about where we sit with this storm is meteorologist at the National Weather Service's Oxnard office, Mike Wofford. Mike, thank you very much for being with us. So w- what are we seeing? with the storm's behavior right now? Well, uh, thankfully, we're in a little bit of a lull, uh, relatively speaking, uh, in the Los Angeles area. Uh, rain rates are, are much lower than what they were overnight and last night. Uh, we're looking at uh, you know basically a quarter of an inch per hour rain rates uh, today, uh, mostly on the lighter side. But there are some indications, maybe a 10 or 20 percent chance that we could see some higher amounts, uh, rain rates up around a half inch or locally higher. But it looks like most of the area is going to be a kind of a steady, light uh, rain uh, through today. And uh, the potential, though, for some thunderstorms possibly moving into the area tomorrow. So that could be another period where we could experience some uh, much heavier rainfall totals. And at what point does it look like we'll be able to dry out from this storm? Yeah, well... Uh, that's a that's a good question. Uh, there, uh, what we're looking at is the potential for some scattered showers, even uh, Wednesday into Thursday. Um, that's uh, sort of a low confidence forecast at this point. We could be looking at if, you know at least some chances of showers through the week. Uh, we do not think that we're going to see any kind of uh, heavy rain that we saw like we did with this uh, overnight period again. Uh, but could be some uh, areas of showers uh, off and on through the week. We're talking with meteorologist, National Weather Service, Mike Wofford, joining us. And what created such a high-intensity storm for our region? It's really a combination uh, of things. Uh, We had a a strong low-pressure system uh, that uh, developed over the uh, eastern Pacific, and uh, created a strong uh, southerly, southeasterly flow ahead of it. Uh, that's, we saw some gusty winds yesterday, uh, but that also uh, created a really strong upslope enhancement of the rain. So we were seeing uh, rain rates of, uh, over an inch an hour at some, in some places uh, because of that. So we had a combination of just a really dynamic system, 
strong southerly winds that really help fuel those uh, those rain totals. Sometimes in the past, we we've had a track of storms that have developed like this, uh, with with heavy rainfall last year being an example. Do we have any indication whether any storms are forming behind the the current one? Yeah, we we don't really have any uh, we uh, major storms. Like I said, as we get into later in the week, we have a couple more systems that look uh, quite a bit lighter than what we're dealing with. And uh, it's looking like next week we're going to be getting into a, a lighter period or maybe a dry a dry stretch. So we, we're just uh, focusing on this week. Uh, looks like it'll be off and on rainy. Uh, but uh, like I said, I, we're hoping that uh, the worst of it has passed. Okay, so no conveyor belt of storms. That's, that's good news. Uh, it looks like there was more rain than snow in our local mountains. Uh, any chance they're going to be getting some more snow in the coming days? We, uh, yeah, the snow levels are going to be coming down as we get into Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, get some colder air. So we should get some snow at lower elevations than what we've been seeing. You know, so far it's been mostly above 7,000 feet uh, in terms of the uh, accumulations. But as we get into Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, it will be colder, and we could see snow down to as low as 4,500 or 5,000 feet. Mike, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us and giving us the latest, and good to hear that a uh, couple more days of this, and then looks like we'll be drying out. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Mike Wofford, meteorologist, the National Weather Service's office in Oxnard, joining us. Our own Jacob Margolis, L.A. A science reporter, is with us. Jacob, thanks so much. Jacob, please elaborate a bit on the science of this particular storm that combined the heavy winds with the downpour. Yeah, you know, Larry, this storm, these types of storms, while this one is particularly heavy, are pretty typical for one El Nino years and two for just California, right? We get atmospheric rivers every single year just about, and they deliver the majority of our moisture here. And so this one came up from deep in the subtropics and essentially uh, picked up a whole lot of moisture and heat from uh, the ocean, which is hotter than normal, coming up towards us. And uh, yeah, just hit our mountains, stalled and dumped a whole lot of rain on top, a whole lot of precip on top, and now we're seeing the flooding. And, And where are some of the areas that have been hardest hit with flooding? Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the rain that these like uh, rainfall monitors and I'm really seeing the south side of the mountainous areas, especially in the across the transverse ranges. So Santa Monica Mountains uh, going into Ventura County. I mean, Topanga and Woodland Hills mind blowing like 10 inches, which is absolutely wild. I mean, that's almost a complete year of what we would of average year of precipitation. I think it's around like 13 to 15 inches usually expected that that is it's a lot. It, it's kind of hard to imagine with a deluge like that in such a short period of time that the that the hillsides held up. That's that's amazing. Some of them didn't. Some of them didn't. I mean, what's wild is that in these hills, like even if you don't see it, uh, like above Montecito, for instance, with some of the intense storms last year, there were over a thousand documented technical like landslides up there. And wow. so some of them just get big enough where they finally come down into the road. And we saw that. We saw that in Tarzana. We saw it in Studio City. We saw we've seen it 
Uh, and while it is typical, it's still quite scary. Yeah, and of course, we had in Studio City a number of homes that were evacuated and damaged. Uh, there is uh, part of the hillside come down uh, with the mm-hmm. debris flow there, uh, big boulders that are out in the street there uh, in Studio City. So that an area that's been particularly hard hit by this. Uh, Jacob, you know, one important point, I know you've emphasized this in the past, you could still have a landslide, as we've seen in Palos Verdes, previously, weeks later, even months later, as the water percolates. Yeah, and because basically the water works its way in between all those tiny little particles of soil and uh, will eventually hit a layer, like a lot of soil, obviously, in these hills, like stacked together, different kinds of material from different eras, different epochs. And when it hits one of those layers, essentially one layer will slough off another and, um, yeah, fall like we saw in Palos Verdes. And so Palos Verdes is a very prone place. And then really, though, because of our geological makeup, um, there's an awful lot of spots through here that are prone. We're talking with Jacob Margolis, and we're asking AirTalk listeners to describe what you're seeing in your neighborhood. If you have flooding, debris flows, whether you've seen land movement as a result or damage to your home, please share with us what you're experiencing. It's a chance for us to get descriptions from throughout Southern California, whether you're listening in Santa Barbara or the Coachella Valley or anywhere in between. 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Allison and Beverly Hills said there were so many people keeping their kids home from school today. I sent mine. It's just rain. That's Allison in Beverly Hills. Marion View Park emailed, our front door is swollen shut. It won't budge. I'm seeing the Uh-oh. inside of my abode mainly. 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Most schools, of course, have stayed open in Southern California. But, Jacob, I saw that um, a large uh, number of the Cal State universities uh, are, are going to either online or canceled classes today. Yeah, absolutely. And there are two LAUSD schools that are closed, which parents, I'm guessing, know by now because it's nine o'clock. But, um, you know, uh, Topanga Elementary, as well as uh, Vinedale College Preparatory Academy, but then all Santa Monica and Malibu Unified schools are closed, apparently. And so um, I think things should be back to normal tomorrow, but we'll have to wait and see. And on the uh, landslide note, Larry, I I do want to say for folks, if you hear creaking, if your door, that door, you know, not just swollen, but won't open. Your windows fall out of plumb. You, you might want to call the fire department. At that All point. right. Jacob, thank you. We appreciate it. Always good to talk with you. That's LA science reporter Jacob Margolis. You've been hearing him throughout the morning. You'll be hearing him throughout the day and reading his coverage at LAS.com. With us now from Ventura County, firefighter and public information officer with Ventura County Fire, Andy Van Skyver. Andy, thank you very much for joining us. I saw you had a couple of swift water rescues yesterday. Where did those take place? Yeah, thanks, Larry. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, the first swift water rescue was at the Ventura River. The Ventura City Fire Department used their hook and ladder truck uh, on the 101 freeway to reach down and lower a firefighter on a rope system to recover and rescue um, the individual that was living or standing on top of their home that was in the Ventura River. 
and that's that's a really big flood path right right there, isn't it? Because that's a long bridge for the river. It is a it is a significant bridge. It's a north and southbound lanes are on on separate bridges. It's also in the vicinity of the Ventura RV park that has in the past been flooded. Um, it's a bit of a choke point, so the water gets going pretty quickly under the bridge. Mm. So we're very, the city of Ventura was very fortunate to be able to execute that rescue successfully. All right. And you have um, many reports of damage to homes or businesses in the county? Fortunately, we don't have any widespread damage, though there was a lot of what we're referring to as nuisance flooding, meaning we've got some water coming up to people's a sliding glass door, some water going in a few basements, some water encroaching into the front doors. And that is kind of widespread throughout the county, but impacting only one resident at a time. We're talking with Andy Van Skyver joining us from Ventura County Fire. Uh, Andy, what about um, road conditions? Have most of the roads stayed open in Ventura County? Yeah, most of the roads stayed open. There are some road closures that are listed on the Caltrans website as also on our vcemergency.com website. I'm looking right now. There's about 15 road closures. I'm noticing many of them are in the Ojai area slash the Ventura River Watershed District. Um, they've gotten a lot of closure, and some of those roads have minor debris flows across the roadway. I'm thinking of the ones I saw earlier this morning on Santa Ana Road. Um, Public Works and Caltrans are out there mitigating them now as we speak. All right. And yeah, Ojai, of course, no stranger to having debris flows there. And I'm looking right now and it, it looks like Highway 33, a significant portion of that is closed uh, north of Miners Oaks in the Ojai area uh, up through the forest, uh, Maricopa Highway. So just so people are aware of that, uh, listening on our transmitter in Ojai. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being with us, Andy, and sharing with us the latest details of what Vin Ventura County's experiencing. You're welcome. And also on that webpage, Larry, the vcemergency.com, and the current evacuations. We still have two evacuation orders in place and two evacuation warnings um, for the area, and we are keeping an eye on Lock and Cheetah at this point in time. That is under advisory, and we have the we've been keeping an eye on that. And for and for those not familiar, Lock and Cheetah is a place that in the past has had deadly uh, landslides. There, it, it's very uh, soft, kind of sandstone cliffs there that give way with water, and the homes are right beneath that between um, the highway uh, one and and um, and the cliffs. And so that is a very very vulnerable area when there's heavy rain. Andy, have you heard anything about uh, any slides there in La Conchita? No, I've been talking with our Office of Emergency Services. They have a hydrologist and a geologist there, and they're keeping an eye on it. Our biggest concern there is the amount of saturation. Usually when we have just one isolated storm, it's not that big of a deal. When we start stacking up um, storm after storm, this one was unique in the fact that it didn't have any torrential downpours. I think the uh, Jacob was on earlier kind of describing the atmospheric river, how we had such a long, steady rainfall, and that's what helps the, the ground absorb the moisture, but it also is bad when the, the hillsides start getting vertical. We haven't had a lot of movement throughout the county. Like I said, we've seen some things on the, the Ventura River area. 
but they were all small and minor um, little debris flows, little landslides coming down the roadway. But we are keeping a close eye on the residents of Lock and Cheetah. When it gets, if it starts to upgrade, we'll move them into a warning or an order. But right now, we're still having them at an advisory. Also, uh, also in the Santa Monica Mountains, just a reminder: make sure that you check before you leave if you're planning to, to traverse the mountains, because there are some road closures there. Not surprisingly, this is fairly typical with heavy rain because of slides that have occurred. Andy, thank you so much. We Appreciate you being with us. Pleasure to be. Thank you. Thank you. Ventura County Fire Firefighter and Public Information Officer Andy Van Skyver joining us on Air Talk. We'll come back and talk with Los Angeles County Supervisor Lindsay Horvath, the chair of the board. She signed an emergency proclamation for the county related to the heavy rain that we've experienced. We'll talk with her about the response in the county to the overnight record-setting rainfall. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined now by Chair of the LA County Board of Supervisors, Lindsay Horvath. Her district, which stretches from Ventura County line along the coast down to West Hollywood, has parts of the San Fernando Valley. Her district's been hit particularly hard by the heavy rain. Supervisor Horvath, thank you very much for being with us. What have you been hearing from your constituents? Well, the, our constituents, uh, especially in the Topanga area, which uh, has partly been evacuated, um, you know, the good news is they work to prepare for times like this. They've been prepared. They're checked into all of the communication lines uh, to make sure they're getting the most up-to-date information. And um, to the best of uh, my knowledge, everybody's heeding all of the warning signs. So um, that's good news. Um, but we're seeing conditions continue to get worse. And we know even even if the rain lessens, um, that it will still be dangerous out there. So we need everybody to stay safe, uh, to stay alert and get those alerts from the county. You can go to lacounty.gov slash emergency for the latest information. Um, but if you can, stay inside too. Supervisor Horvath, you signed an emergency proclamation for the county. What does that entail? It allows us to access funds and resources that we wouldn't otherwise be able to in a time of emergency. Um, as you heard, the state also declared a state of emergency. So we are aligned with the state and with all of our city governments, all governments working together to keep people safe and keep lines of communication open. Um, so uh, it's very important to also remind people that this is an emergency. We have to take it seriously and uh, stay safe. Thank you so much, Supervisor Horvath. We appreciate you being on us for with us very much. Thank you. Supervisor Lindsay Horvath, chair of the LA County Board of Supervisors. Want to take this opportunity again to remind you that we look forward to you sharing what you're experiencing in your neighborhood, what what you're seeing in the way of flooding, debris flows, any landslides that you've experienced. If you've had damage to your home or neighbors' homes, please let us know what's happened in your community with the record-setting overnight rainfall in so many locations and the very 
high winds that we experienced as well, even as the rain continues following uh, falling in much of Southern California. With us is Los Angeles Times columnist Pat Morrison, who has written about the historic rainfall that we've had here over the years in Southern California and the ways that that has changed our infrastructure. Pat, thank you so much. Great to have you with us. I hope your home came through okay. Well, so far, so good, but I had to dig into my captain's courageous wardrobe. <laughs> okay. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty intense what we have seen. So how does this compare to some of the historic deluges of Los Angeles? Well, you know, we like to use the word freak to describe these events, uh, and certainly climate change has intensified them in, in uh, frequency as well. But they happen often enough that they're not really freak. We just get so used to the Pacific climate, small p, that we forget how devastating it can be. A lot of it comes from this immense um, uh, flood capacity. The, the mountains, the San Gabriels are, uh, are in the Santa Monica's, are a flood-making machine. So we have that working against us. The, the fourth highest 24-hour rainfall in the continental United States was almost 26 inches in the San Gabriels about 80 years ago. So we have to look at that as the old normal as well as add on to the new normal here. We do have snow once in a while in the outlying areas, even downtown once in a while. So we've got to get over this idea that it's always going to be nice and pleasant and brace ourselves. All right, Pat Morrison, L.A. Times columnist, joining us. So you mentioned that historic flood. It's incredible, the amount of rain in the San Gabriels. And uh, what was the extent of of uh, downstream damage that that did? Well, here's what, from the earliest days of the Spanish Pueblo, the, the people who came here from Spain, this is before the, the Anglos showed up, they weren't paying attention to what the Native Americans did. And the Native Americans knew the landscape. They gave it a wide berth. But the Spanish said, oh, there's the river. We're going to build on the riverbank. Well, the riverbank changed every year. And from the very first, the Spanish had to rebuild and move their settlements. And we learned over time, Larry, as we built bridges, as we built the zanjas to channel water, that the water wasn't always going to behave the way that we wanted it to do so, whether it was raining in the mountains or raining on the plains. And so in the 1938 flood, which postponed the Oscars by three days, can you imagine? Wow. Um, <laughs> we know it was bad. Stars, <laughs> the movie stars were stuck on their ranches in the San, uh, San Fernando Valley. It took out railroad trestles and bridges. And in fact, the death toll was about 100, in part because people were standing on bridges over the river, gaping, and the, the bridge gave way, and oh they were washed gosh. away. Oh, just terrible. I remember my grandparents telling me about 38 and the historic flooding and describing um, a large portion around Culver City, the, the lower-lying area, and, of course, where the Bayona wetlands are, Bayona Creek, just it being uh, people taking boats to get around portions of, of uh, Culver City in the west side of Los Angeles. And um, as you described, the San Fernando Valley as well became essentially... A lake. Well, the dairy sent out milkmen in boats to deliver the milk, and the L.A. Times delivered the paper by boat and, of course, made a lot of capital out of that. But, but people forget about the damage that floods can do, not just to infrastructure, as you mentioned, but to lives. It's shocking to think 
that in California, more people have died in floods than in earthquakes. Earthquakes seem to be the monster on the horizon, but floods have killed more Californians than earthquakes. And of course, we have, uh, I, I suppose it had to have been the deadliest of all, the St. Francis Dam collapse and, and all the people that were killed in the river uh, shed there from from that. Uh, was that the 20s that that collapsed? I'm trying 28. To 28. Yeah, and, and of course, I'm not sure that they ever really got a full accounting of lives lost no, from that, did they? In the hundreds, and, and many people were migrant workers, and so they, they didn't necessarily leave a paper record, or for that matter, survivors, uh, to talk about uh, the missing. And that w- one of the great tragedies of the Los Angeles area was certainly that. Just terrible. And, you know, at that time, important to mention, I, I know we all know this, but, but we're so used to having the advanced forecast, their news conferences with government officials before we get these massive storms now. Back then, there was no there was no understanding of atmospheric rivers. There were there was no knowledge of El Nino's or La Nina phenomenon. There were no satellites to do long range forecasts. People were really flying blind. It's absolutely true. We went blind into this, and not only for the storms themselves, but for as you alluded to, the infrastructure. You know, we build as if there were no floods, or we build as if there would be no floods. And look at the consequences to to the city. And also you look at drought, Larry, and you think of the trillions of gallons that are being washed away now and how we no longer have the capacity. The land has been so paved over that that water that could have replenished the water table is now flowing into the ocean through a very complicated and elaborate system of storm drains, rivers, canals, um, and, uh, and flood channels. Again, I'd love to hear from Air Talk listeners what you've experienced with the heavy rain that we had overnight continuing into today. Please share with us what you've seen in your neighborhood or on your commute. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Mark in Riverside said the Storm Drain Division is in the city of Riverside did a great job of going through and unclogging the the drains in advance. I hope other cities are having the same success with preventive maintenance. I saw that, Mark, actually happening uh, um, along the 134 freeway yesterday. They were going along checking all the drains to make sure that they were unplugged. Caltrans folks were doing that, and uh, obviously very happy to see that. We also, from uh, Los Angeles uh, City Fire Department, have received uh, word of a debris flow causing significant damage to approximately five homes in the Beverly Crest area. This is in the 19th block of North Beverly Drive in the Beverly Crest neighborhood. No one trapped in the homes. That's good news. The L.A. Department of Building and Safety has been notified to assess potentially red tag any seriously compromised uh, structures. Firefighters assisted with evacuating residents. Approximately 10 people have been displaced with five, approximately five homes, according to L.A. City Fire in the Beverly Crest neighborhood of Los Angeles. Pat, um, if we go way back to 1825, that flood has had a huge effect on the evolution of Los Angeles because it changed the mouth of the L.A. River. It actually did. This was so thunderous that the river 
people don't remember because, of course, none of us was around then, although sometimes it feels like it. <laughs> but it, uh, up until 1825, the river had flowed down through the Pueblo at the foot of where Dodger Stadium is now, the cliff there. And then it took a turn west near where USC is now and flowed out across the great, we'll call it the Santa Monica Freeway Plain and just replenish the water table for thousands and thousands of years. And if you were sailing up the coast of California, you would see the mouth of the Los Angeles River, not as this thundering outfall of water, but as all these tributaries and wetlands as the water just seeped out into the ocean. Well, the flood in 1825 that you allude to was so powerful that the river no longer turned out toward the ocean. It started thundering directly south, the path more or less where we now see it emptying into the harbor. So imagine those floodwaters. Mm. Gravity prevailed, and it took the path of least resistance, obviously. Woody Guthrie wrote a song, Los Angeles New Year's Flood, in which he commemorated the disaster of December 1933. Twelve inches of rain fell on La Crescenta, La Cañada, and Montrose in that Crescenta Valley area. Um, uh, New Year's Eve, um, more rain fell. Mud and water came down around midnight, destroying more than 400 homes in the area. Woody Guthrie wrote a song about it, and um, catch basins were built after that for for that area below the San Gabriel Mountains and the Verdugo Mountains. But one important thing uh, to mention there, Pat, is um, that people described the sound of that as they were sitting in their homes, those who were able to to get out, and uh, they said it was just deafening, the noise. Yes, um, and Woody Guthrie was a DJ in Los Angeles then in 1934, a dollar a day uh, DJ, and, and wrote this very poignant song. But as you see, the sound, the sound of boulders, the sound of cars crashing into the, each other and the boulders crashing into the cars, the water was just thunderous. I mean, if you hadn't known about the wet, you would have thought you, there was a thunderstorm directly over your head. Houses yanked off their foundations and thrown down this sudden chute of water and boulders and mud that, again, Larry, the exact accounting of the death toll is still not known to this day, but certainly dozens of people, including a, a twin pair of USC male cheerleaders who had been child movie stars caught in their car with mm. on their date for, for New Year's Eve. Yeah, just just terrible. And again, uh, just reemphasize, there's no advance warning because at that time in the 30s, we just didn't have the technology available to be able to determine that uh, we were getting a big storm. Obviously, there was a telephone. People could share what they were seeing in Northern California, what, but we just didn't have the satellite and, and uh, all the other technology available to do forecasting that we do now. Pat, with with the infrastructure that changed here over the years, there have been uh, efforts to to try and and remove some of the concrete, naturalize the channels. We do have portions of the L.A. River, of course, uh, in the Los Feliz area, which are are uh, much more natural than other parts of the river. But you know, I've wondered with the, the uh, climate change we're experiencing, more extreme weather conditions, whether it's going to be more difficult for those campaigns to remove the concrete to prevail. You're absolutely right, Larry. One of the paradoxes of the river is that it isn't a river. It's a different river for every community it passes through. Uh, Up in the San Fernando Valley, it looks 
like a real river. It's got river banks and reeds and rushes and ducks and all sorts of pleasant things, and certainly through the, the Glendale Narrows. But as you get farther down, south of downtown, those towns exist because the concrete is there, because the concrete keeps the river from overflowing into these communities of southeast Los Angeles County. And so there the river is, a concrete river is a desirable thing. So the character of the river and the needs of the river change as it moves through the great Los Angeles County Basin. And I know there are many residents in areas, Long Beach, a great example of this, where every time we have heavy rain, the same areas flood near Willow there, the 710 Freeway and other low-lying areas, Sunset Beach, of course, in Orange County, which sees Coast Highway flooded uh, almost every time we have a major rain event. There's some areas where... They're so low-lying that even with engineering that's been applied to it, it it's just it's uh, continued to vex. One of the, the things that struck me as I was doing research for you know, the River Book and a great deal about the water here is that there used to be so many little streams and rivulets uh, through the canyons um, in, the, in the, the Beverly, Vermont area, for example, and the people just lived with them. It was a pleasant aspect of the landscape. But when they flooded, then people said, no, 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 we have to get rid of these. First it was bridges over them, and then they were completely uh, completely gotten rid of because people thought not only was it a danger to life and limb, it took real estate off the market. And that, of course, was the cardinal sin in Los Angeles. So we've had to re-engineer by making them disappear insofar as we could, and now people are saying, well, can we bring some of that back? And some of it, yes, but some of it, I think, is gone forever. Um, Pat Morrison, thank you so much. Let me share some more listener comments that uh, we've uh, received so far. Uh, that includes Terry and Whittier, who emailed, Rain here is slow, but it's constant. The wind has died down. My rain gauge just shy of three inches from this storm. Three inches in fewer than 24 hours, but some places have had considerably more than that, uh, up to 10 inches in some of the mountain communities who've just been and inundated with heavy rain that they've experienced. Listener Karen in Palm Springs asking uh, about driving into Los Angeles today. Her uh, her kids are worried about her making the drive. Uh, Karen, I was just looking a bit at what uh, traffic from the east looks like into Los Angeles, and I'm not seeing major crashes, but traffic is very slow from the 60. If you're coming in on the 10, which I presume you would, traffic is slow from the 60 pretty much most of the way in uh, on the 10 into the central part of Los Angeles. So I suppose it's just a matter of how much patience that you have. Um, But it looks like the conditions at this point not necessarily unsafe, but you can still hit some cells. And as we heard earlier from the National Weather Service meteorologist, there is a chance for some thunderstorms today. You don't want to be caught in that. So maybe the safest thing is to make your trip another day, but at least the freeways look open. Pat, thank you so much as always. I love talking LA history with you. Let's do it sometime again soon. Let's do it. Thank you, Larry. Thanks. Pat Morrison, Los Angeles Times columnist joining us. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Coming up, we continue our conversations with the candidates for LA County District Attorney Uh, We'll be talking with Superior Court Judge Craig Mitchell. 
Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price. After escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. We've invited all 12 of the candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney to join us for approximately 15-minute conversations. And we've had most of them on to this point, including the incumbent, George Gascon. Last week, we're pleased to have with us today Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Craig Mitchell. Judge Mitchell, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So um, just give us a a brief background, how long you've been on the bench and how long you have uh, either been practicing as an attorney or a judge. I've been on the bench almost 20 years. And before that, I was a prosecutor in Los Angeles for 11 and somewhat of a unique uh, background in terms of my own career. I was a high school teacher in South Los Angeles for 17 years. All right. And what led you to decide to enter such a large field uh, in this race to try and unseat the current DA? Quite simply, it stems from what I have observed from the bench over the last three years. I will cite two cases that uh, were very compelling for me. One involves a case that came into my courtroom just a few months ago where an individual was trafficking 20 kilos of methamphetamine. The offer by the district attorney's office was time served, three days in jail. I had another gentleman shortly after Gascon came into office. He was stabbed 13 times. He came into my courtroom, looked me in the eye, and said, Judge Mitchell, why is this individual receiving so little time? He almost killed me. I had to explain to this gentleman, because the district attorney's office didn't file a great bodily injury enhancement, didn't file a weapons use enhancement, didn't charge the person with attempted murder. That is the reason the sentence was so low. Okay. And and these are examples of things that would have been different under his predecessor, Jackie Lacey's leadership? Absolutely. And would be very different under my leadership. And uh, now uh, the DA has said that uh, he has revise some of the uh, decisions on enhancements now that gun enhancements are being prosecuted in many cases. They're bringing discretion to more of these prosecutions. Are you seeing that from the bench? Not particularly, no. And whatever modifications uh, he's referencing, I think uh, are a result of him uh, facing uh, a hotly contested election. Now, you've uh, done work on Skid Row. You have a running club, uh, I believe, uh, that's there as well. Thirteen years ago, I founded the Skid Row Running Club. 
on Skid Row. And in fact, Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays for the last 13 years, six o'clock in the morning, I have been on Skid Row every single day. Now, so you've you've been uh, at the center of homelessness in the city of Los Angeles. Um, what is your critique of how the DA's office is dealing with homelessness? Ineffectively. Recent studies indicate that 90% of the chronically homeless suffer from addiction. 70% suffer from mental illness. And unless we use the criminal justice system to move a person from addiction into long-term sobriety, from mental illness into mental health, we are not going to see a significant reduction in the homeless population. And so what would you do if you're if you're dealing with people with a serious addiction or dealing with seri- serious mental illness, um, what would the way that, that enforcing of the law would be helpful as opposed to just putting more people in L.A. County jail who are distressed? The solution is not to put people who are addicted into jail. The strategy needs to be to create incentives for people who are addicted, who suffer from mental illness, to seek treatment. And that's where the criminal justice system can play a key role. For the last 18 years in my courtroom, I have seen people. You look at their criminal history. You see one meth possession case, one cocaine possession case after the next. It's very easy to identify the people who are suffering from addiction. And when you identify that, you essentially give that person an option. You say, okay, you know, the law provides me to place you in custody for 180 days, 90 days, whatever period, or we can get you into treatment. And Larry, 95% of the people who are presented with that option say, Judge, I'll take treatment. And that is the first essential step to get that person headed in the direction of recovery. But there's not that option available now because there's no stick. None whatsoever. Gascon is not even filing drug possession cases, and that is unilateral across the board. We're talking with Craig Mitchell, Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge. Now, they are filing for felony cases of distribution, right? So Sure, but when all you're looking at for 20 kilos of methamphetamine is three days in jail, <laughs> that is a price that most drug dealers are willing to pay. Judge Mitchell, let's, uh, let's talk about your views on a number of, of different uh, current policies. Uh, Proposition 47, which uh, has as misdemeanor property crimes of under $950. Do you support a changing of Proposition 47, or do you support that effort to try and reduce mass incarceration? I certainly want to reduce mass incarceration, but I also believe that Prop 47 is not helping to keep people in Los Angeles safe. The problem with Prop 47, prior to its enactment, if you were a habitual thief, after a certain number of theft offenses, you were looking at a low sentence in state prison, 16 months, two years, or three years. That is completely off the table. So a person who is going into your Rite Aid, who is going into Ralph's and stealing certain items, They can do that over and over and over again, and there is no 
consequences. So you're not seeing uh, the L.A. County District Attorney do the multiple uh, prosecute the multiple multiple offenders. I thought they had started doing that. That you're not seeing that. I have not seen a single case in my courtroom. We're talking with Judge Craig Mitchell, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Um, the um, uh, uh, prosecution of juveniles as adults is something that has uh, largely been done away with by the DA's office. There has been a softening on that issue recently, particularly with a, a, a particularly high-profile case. But what is your view? What should the threshold be for consideration of prosecuting juveniles as adults? Juveniles end up in adult court very rarely. And that's the way it should be. But I had a case in my courtroom where during a week's period of time, a 16-year-old tried to kill four absolutely innocent people walking on the streets of Los Angeles. He succeeded in killing two and was unsuccessful in killing the two others. Now, if you try that person in juvenile court, he's 16 years old, he was 18 by the time the case came to trial, the maximum period of confinement that that individual would be looking at would be up to the age of 25. So you're looking at seven more years in custody for trying to kill four people, succeeding in killing two young people. I think that is insufficient. The, the argument is, uh, and the DA made this last week with us, that the, the brain of a 16-year-old just is not developed enough to, um, in many cases, make these moral decisions. And so we, you know, we, we really shouldn't be essentially destroying a kid's life unless it's a particularly heinous case. Having taught high school for 17 years, I have a pretty good idea of where a 16-year-old's mind has developed to. And with that basis, I think I have a pretty good basis of saying there needs to be a certain consequence for heinous conduct. And it does apply and appropriately applies to certain 16 or 17-year-olds. Now, do I believe in, you know, essentially locking up a juvenile for a crime and throwing away the key for the rest of their life? No. Okay, that is what our penal system in its ideal functioning form does. It looks at a person. It looks at, have they matured? Have they reexamined their life? Have they disassociated from their gang affiliations? All those considerations need to be uh, looked at to see if this person deserves a second chance. Judge Craig Mitchell, L.A. County Superior Court judge and candidate for L.A. County District Attorney joining us. One of the critiques uh, that the opponents of uh, George Gascon have raised is his management of the DA's office. They've been highly critical of it. There's been a great deal of dissension among district attorneys on his staff. Uh, what, if any, management experience would you bring to this to try and manage such a massive department uh, and and to try and, and deal with the unhappiness of the deputy DAs? My management experience essentially is rooted in serving uh, on an administrative staff at a high school here in Los Angeles. I have managed a superior court courtroom where you have to deal with very contentious attorneys. You have to deal with victims of crime. You have to deal with those charged with crimes and make the whole system work. Um, so uh, 
I think I have the people skills that are necessary to unite the district attorney's office and, and get it back on the right track. You'd be coming from outside the department, though, because how many years has it been since you said you worked in the DA's office? Eighteen and a half. But the reason I'm running, Larry, is because during the 11 years that I was a prosecutor, uh, the last three years during that uh, prosecutorial stint, I tried more murder cases as a prosecutor than any other prosecutor in Los Angeles. So, I mean, I wasn't handling traffic tickets. I wasn't handling low-grade crimes. I am well-steeped in the most important functions of that office. Now, uh, one of the other candidates for office, also as a judge, but stepped down to run for office. What led you to decide to stay on the bench and run? Well, uh, I have taken a leave of absence. You have taken a leave, okay. And, and that is required by our court system. Okay. So, but you're still considered judge at this point, even though you've taken a leave? That is correct. All right. Let's talk about the death penalty, because uh, D.A. Gascon has said, despite the fact that the death penalty prevailed with California voters just a few years ago, that in Los Angeles County, the majority of voters uh, were against the death penalty. So he feels very comfortable not prosecuting any cases as death penalty cases. If you were elected D.A., what would you do? I personally am opposed to the death penalty. I just want to get that right out there, okay? But I also understand that the district attorney ultimately doesn't make that call. That decision is made by 12 jurors. And as a prosecutor, even though I personally disagreed with the death penalty, I submitted two cases for death consideration because the facts behind those killings were so egregious. So if you're asking me what I would do as a district attorney as opposed to my personal beliefs, there is a distinction to be made. But the jury could only uh, convict and, and give a death sentence if the, the, if the prosecutor put that forward, correct? So this is at the discretion of the DA's office. Absolutely correct. So you're saying that you would decide in some cases, to, at the discretion of your office, pursue the death penalty? I appreciate the, the directness of the question, and, and I will probably, you know, alienate certain listeners. I am against the death penalty. Okay. So does that mean you, you probably would not prosecute Cases as That's an penalties. accurate read of my okay. answer. We're talking with L.A. County Superior Court Judge Craig Mitchell joining us on Air Talk. Uh, let's talk. Let, Larry, oh, can, yeah. can I just say one yes, thing? Go ahead. One of the primary reasons that I would unlikely pursue death, I have watched from the bench millions and millions and millions of taxpayer taxpayer dollars being spent on the 20-year process it takes to appeal a death sentence. In California, no one is being executed. Not since 06. Okay. That is wasted money. And those millions and millions of dollars, I think, could be more effectively redirected to helping the victims of crime restore their lives. want to give you, we have just less than a minute left, a very brief uh, chance for you to tell our listeners why you think they should vote for you as the next DA of L.A. County. Larry, I have served Los Angeles County for 45 years. As indicated, teacher, prosecutor, uh, superior court judge, 
13 years serving the homeless and addicted population on Skid Row. No one else has that background. And if we really want to be serious about having someone with the life experience to bring to the table common sense solutions to address the most critical issues facing Los Angeles County, I think I have the credentials to do that. Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Craig Mitchell joining us. L.A. County D.A. candidate Judge Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Larry, thank you very much. We've invited all the candidates to join us. We're speaking with them one by one. It's Air Talk on L.A. 89.3. It's Air Talk on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. The National Weather Service has just issued a flash flood warning for the Santa Monica Mountains and portions of the Hollywood Hills. This affecting the Lake Sherwood, the Topanga area, uh, areas uh, throughout the Santa Monica Mountains, all the way in the uh, Hollywood Hills areas. Um, so, again, the flash flood warning, and it is in effect until 3 this afternoon. There, so there are concerns about the potential for debris flows and flooding in the mountains and in our local hills. We'll keep you updated on that throughout the course of the day here on Air Talk on L.A. 89.3. When Austin Cross is uh, in with us a little bit later with the first hour of All Things Considered, we'll have that full coverage for you. But we turn our attention right now to the launch of the voter game plan. LA's voter game plan is up and live starting today. And with us is civics and democracy correspondent Frank Stoltz to tell us about all the tools that we can find there for the upcoming election. Frank, good morning. Good morning, Larry. So what are you contributing to the voter game plan this time around? Well, there are a lot of people contributing a lot of things, and uh, it's your one-stop shop for voting in the election. And, you know, it's kind of hard to believe the election is upon us. Uh, Mail-in ballots have already gone out uh, or are in the process of going out if you haven't gotten yours yet. So it should be in the mail any day now. And essentially what I've focused on uh, in this particular voter game plan is the district attorney's race, uh, District 14 in the city council race and the supervisor's race, District 4. Uh, and my colleague, uh, Bree, uh, Brianna Lee, has contributed a lot in terms of uh, explaining the basic issues. And again, what we've done for voters, Larry, is we've done all the Googling for you. We've done all <laughs> the research for you. Uh, so uh, you, you don't uh, even really need to go to the candidates' websites, although we link to those link to their endorsements, because I know endorsements mean a lot to people. Uh, but we've done a lot of the research for you. All right, Frank. So uh, the DA's race, uh, we here on Air Talk are, are ultimately going to be able to interview 11 of the 12 candidates. Uh, one Judge David Milton declined our invitation, but everybody else spending approximately 15 minutes with us. And then um, you have for the DA's candidates sort of side-by-side -side look at where they stand? Yeah, what we do is we, first of all, and we do this with each of the races, we explain what the office is all about, what, what the duties of the district attorney are, which, you know, not everybody fully understands. And then we uh, go over the big issues facing the DA's office and the big issues in the race itself. And we explain things like sentencing enhancements in a simple and 
clear way. And then we summarize the candidates' platforms. And uh, in just a few graphs, we'll say, you know, where essentially they stand. And the beauty of this uh, voter game plan is that you can kind of stop there and make your decision on how to vote uh, if you don't have a lot of time, if you feel like you've gotten enough information, or you can go deeper and go to the candidates page and you can take a look at their full responses to our candidate survey. We polled all the candidates in all the major races on the big issues and their their big issues for them and the big issues in the races. And um, they filled out the survey. So you can go to the full candidate survey to take a look at where they stand and really get a feel for uh, how they feel about the issues. And you can find this all at elias.com slash VGP for voter game plan, or you can write it all out, voter game plan without any spaces after the slash, and and, um, you can uh, get all this information to help prepare you for the upcoming election. There's also a link to our interviews with the DA. We have one more candidate to come, and that's tomorrow, and then we'll have uh, pretty much the complete set, at least everybody who was willing to uh, spend time with us. You also— And by the way, I should mention that—yeah, and I should mention that we'll be linking to each of those— uh, interviews that you did with each of the DA candidates as well. So you'll be able to, again, go deeper, listen to the 15-minute interviews that you did with the DA candidates, a simple click uh, from their candidates page. That's great. Frank Stoltz, civics and democracy correspondent at LAist. We'll be back with him in just a moment to ask about some of the other coverage that he's providing as part of LAist's voter game plan. Brianna Lee is engagement producer for civics and democracy at LAist. Brianna, good morning. Thank you. What else are we going to find in the guide? So uh, another thing we're going to do that is a little bit new that we did this year is that we have a small series that focuses on the issues that Angelinos care about. That's in addition to the guides we have about each office that's up for election on the ballot. So the issues uh, that we cover include, you know, homelessness, housing affordability, the climate emergency and public safety. And what these guides are is, you know, we're not at all telling people how to vote based on these issues, but instead you can kind of think of it as a way to guide your research when you're starting to figure out, uh, you know, how to research your ballot. All right. And and so if you're going to be doing it as a sort of issues oriented, how do you try and keep subjectivity out of that? Because a lot of that is, is, is going to involve a certain form of translation. How do you, how do you do that objectively? Yeah, well, I mean, again, so, you know, we're we're not really um, telling people kind of which way how to feel about these issues or, you know, like where to take a stand, but it's really um, trying to break down how to interpret your ballot and figure out how it intersects with the issues that you care about. So the background of this is, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about voting uh, with people, even if it's not an election year, that's sort of the party guest persona that I have. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of people who care very strongly about certain issues issues, but aren't necessarily dialed into specific policy debates or the technicalities of what people are talking about. They may not even know who their city council member is or what they do, but they really want to use their vote to help fix problems in the community. So that's really what these guides are for. You know, um, so we talk about where the fault lines are, where candidates tend to show their differences when it comes to certain issues, and also uh, we outline which offices on your ballot have the most direct impact on that issue in your neighborhood. So we're really sort of breaking it down. It's not telling people how to feel one way or another. So for people who look at their ballot and aren't really sure where to start, 
this can be a starting point for what you can think about as you're starting to do your research. That's great. We're talking with Brianna Lee, engagement producer at LAS Civics and Democracy, her beat. You you even have information on the county central committees. We do indeed. Yeah. So these are, uh, I really enjoy uh, covering very obscure down ballot offices. And so this is definitely one of those. So if you're registered with the Democratic or Republican parties, you might see a race for county central committees on your ballot. And it will say that you can vote for up to seven candidates. And this is really confusing because so few people know what this office is, let alone are familiar enough with it to decide on seven people that they've never heard of. So what we do in this guide is we explain what this office is. They're, they're governing bodies for political parties. And one of the most notable powers they have is making endorsements for on behalf of the official party, uh, which can be pretty influential. So they have power to tip the scale in a lot of ways. But because they're unpaid positions, nobody really spends a lot of money to campaign for these offices. So what we do in the guide is we, we break down all this information. What is this? Why is it on your ballot? And then we also list every single candidate for these committees. There's over 200 of them. And we reached out to all of them that we could get a hold of to get any information about their campaigns, including um, bios, what slates they're on, links to their social media accounts. So, you know, hopefully this this helps you know, voters uh, figure out a little bit about these candidates so that they're then they're not just seeing mysterious, you know, floating names on their ballot. This is great. And this is what we've, of course, done in the past with the judges races, because people find it very hard to get information about the candidates for superior court judge. Yeah, and that, that's one of our most popular guys. And um, we have that again as well. My colleague, Caitlin Hernandez, did a great job covering all the judicial races. So um, that's something that you're going to see as well. Very good. Now, the first deadline that's coming up regarding the March election is in just over two weeks on February 20th. That's the last day to register to vote and to, to do that registration online and get a mail-in ballot. You can still register to vote in person at a vote center after that deadline. But if you want to make sure to get a mail-in ballot and you want to register online to vote, the deadline for that is February 20th. That is the first key date that is coming up with the uh, election. March 5th, of course, is the last day to vote. We used to call it election day, but most people actually vote in advance of that. That's the deadline, March 5th, to vote in person, to drop your mail-in ballot in a ballot box or for the postmark for your mail-in ballot of March 5th. And then April 5th, all the results have to be finalized and to be certified a month later on April 5th. Frank, uh, let's talk about some of the other races that you're looking at. Uh, one, the L.A. City Council open seat uh, District 14. Share with us what's happening there. Well, of course, that's the seat held by uh, City Councilman Kevin DeLeon, and he was one of those who was involved in the secret City Hall tape scandal and was heard uh, in a conversation that included a lot of racist uh, language. And uh, he is in an uphill battle to hold on to his seat, largely because of that tape scandal. And of course, there were huge calls for him to resign. Uh, he refused. Uh, despite others resigning as a result of that uh, scandal, he has held on. And in fact, he just sent out a fundraising letter. It wasn't actually a fundraising letter. It was a campaign letter saying, I truly apologize for everything I did. It's, it was a two-page letter to all of the folks who are 
uh, in his uh, district. And the district runs uh, in, uh, from downtown, includes most of downtown, out to the east side to Boyle Heights, and then up toward Highland Park and Eagle Rock. And that's District 14. And he faces seven challengers. So it's a hot race. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a couple of assembly people who are uh, running who are well-funded. Uh, and so he's in a he's in a tough race there. And in this guide, of course, we explain exactly what I'm talking about now, why this is such a hot weight race, why this this is a big issue in this race, the secret uh, city hall tape scandal and what it might what impact it might have. And then, of course, we get into the key issues facing the city council at, at, at you know, it, it itself, homelessness, housing, uh, public safety, and we uh, kind of bouncing off of Bree's, you know, overall uh, summaries of these issues, uh, we get into a little more of the nitty gritty when we talk about each of the city council races, including District 14, and, and talk about some of the key votes that'll be coming up that the, any candidate would have to vote on. All right. And Frank, uh, the L.A. County District 4 supervisorial race, uh, what information are you sharing there? Well, I think what's notable there, of course, is that the former sheriff, Alex Villanueva, is running against um, uh, the incumbent, Janice Hahn. And uh, this is a district that stretches from uh, the Torrance area, includes Rancho Palos Verdes, and then goes over to Long Beach and then kind of shoots up north and includes Whittier, uh, Downey, Vernon, kind of the east L.A., uh, Southeast LA County cities. And um, of course, Janice Hahn, uh, part of a, a, you know, kind of a, 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 a huge political family, of course, in LA, the former uh, mayor is her brother, the former county supervisor, her father. And um, she is up against Villanueva and uh, uh, a councilman from Rancho Palos Verdes, John Crookshank. And um, it's an interesting race. And we go over some of the key issues. And again, we sort of focus on the candidates and then also the issues that they'll be voting on at the Board of Supervisors. And some of them are not unlike what's facing the city council. You know, obviously, homelessness and provision of social services and then to some extent uh, affordable housing. Uh, and public safety as well. So that's an interesting race, and we explain it. Uh, again, L Larry, kind of the beauty of this guide is that you can kind of go as deep as you want to go. We, You can kind of read a summary of the issues, a summary of the candidates' positions, uh, and then make a decision on how to vote. Then if you want to, you can go further uh, to find out more with our full candidate surveys and other links and such. Great. I can't wait to spend time with it and really dive into it. By the way, the only statewide ballot proposition is Prop 1. We had our debate on it last week. You'll also find a link to it. In case you missed it, you can hear that full extensive debate. We had uh, actually two people on the pro, two on the con side of Prop 1, you'll be able to hear that linked from the voter game plan as well. Where you find it is LAist.com slash VGP for voter game plan, or you can write it all the way out, LAist.com slash voter game plan. All the information is there. Thank you so much, Frank Stoltz, civics and democracy correspondent, and Brianna Lee, engagement producer on civics and democracy at LAist.com. They've done tremendous tremendous work. Again, just in case you just joined us, there is a flood warning in effect for the Santa Monica Mountains and the Hollywood Hills until 3 this afternoon. 
That again, a flash flood warning in the Hollywood Hills and the Santa Monica Mountains. We also have this breaking news. King Charles III has been diagnosed with a form of cancer and has begun treatment, according to Buckingham Palace. The palace says the cancer is not related to the king's recent treatment for a benign prostate condition. Uh, the statement doesn't say what form of cancer the 75-year-old king has. It said Charles remains wholly positive about his treatment and looks forward to returning to full public duty as soon as possible. It's Air Talk on LA, a state 89.3. Coming up, the future of rice, a crop which provides 20% of uh, the calories that we as humans receive. But to cultivating rice has become ever more challenging with our changing climate. We'll find out what sorts of changes are taking place when we come back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up at 11 o'clock, we're going to have a news conference with local officials talking about the record downpour that we've received. We'll carry that live uh, shortly after 11 o'clock right here on LA is 89.3. Well, we know that rice is a staple around the world and uh, that its cultivation takes place uh, around the world as well, as including a significant uh, rice cultivation effort in uh, the Central Valley of California. The state relies on agriculture, of course, for our, our local economy. And the question is, with our changing climate, what are the effects going to be on the cultivation of rice? Joining us is Rice and Wild Rice Advisor and UC Cooperative Extension Director in Sutter and Yuba Counties, Whitney Brim DeForest. Whitney, thank you very much for, for being with us. You know, please share with us uh, what sorts of stressors that rice growers have seen in California with our, our wild swings from from extensive drought to record-setting precipitation. How are they coping with all this? Well, so I will say that it's been it's been difficult. Um, every year, is, uh, we've had different challenges, and so it's been it's been difficult to adapt. Um, on a yearly basis to kind of whatever nature is throwing our way. So, but rice growers are, and like, like all growers, I would say are very uh, adaptable and ready to, you know, change their practices or, or timings of things. 
um, with whatever nature throws at us. You know, one of the critiques of, of rice growing is thought to be a water hog uh, with it growing in the baddies. And I, I wonder, uh, is that a fair rap that rice gets? So rice does use a fair amount of water, but um, the way that we grow rice in California and the location that we grow it, um, the soil is actually not well suited to other cropping systems. Um, we have a very high clay content soil that doesn't uh, lend itself well to, to other crops. Um, and the, the water tends to sit really in the top of the, the soil and kind of like a, a bathtub, if you kind of think about it. So the water doesn't really percolate down very much. So it really holds that water right in place. Do and you over know- time, we've gotten more and more efficient with our water usage by growing uh, rice varieties that produce more for every bit of water that we use. How does California become such a big rice producer, given that it's um, it's not the sort of moist subtropical region that we typically think of as being ideal for rice? Sure. So we're actually uh, what's called a, a more of a temperate rice growing region. So we we're actually similar in climate to, say, like Japan, for example, in terms of our climate. Um, and rice production really took off here um, towards the end of the 1800s um, with Chinese immigrants, uh, laborers in California. And then commercial production started around 1912. All right. And and describe for us the rice belt. I know it. there is some cultivation as far south as even Fresno, but where is the heart of rice growing in the state? So it's really in the Sacramento Valley. Um, so the main, actually the biggest acreage is in Calusa County, sort of on the west side of the Sac Valley. And Calusa is actually the biggest rice-growing county in the United States in terms of acreage. Um, so Calusa, Glen, Butte, and then where I work, Sutter Yuba, Placer County a little bit, south into Zolo and Sacramento. So that's really the heart of it. There is more grown in San Joaquin now than there was a few years ago as well, so down in the Delta area. A little bit. And I've seen that because of the drought we've had in recent years, there's been some fallowing of acreage that had been devoted to rice. You have a sense of, of how much uh, the crop has been cut as a result of water shortages? Yeah, so last year we, we were we were back up um, acreage-wise to, to our sort of normal acreage, which is about 700,000 acres. But the previous year we were we were cut basically in half. About 50% of the acres was planted. And does most of that rice go out of state or stay here domestic or stay within the state of California? So about 50% of the rice is eaten domestically, so across the U.S., um, and then about 50% is exported. And out of that, about half of that goes to Japan, so 25% goes to Japanese markets. All right. We're talking with Whitney Brim DeForest, who's Rice and Wild Rice Advisor and UC Cooperative Extension Director in Sutter and Yuba Counties. Expert talking about California rice growing. Also with us is Erica Steiger, Professor of Practice in Tropical Agronomy at Cornell University. Professor Steiger, thank you for being with us. For having me. So with with the climate changing around the world, what sorts of stressors has that created in the global rice cultivation market? Yes, I, I would like to say that uh, you know rice globally, and you mentioned that it's grown in 118 countries. 
And uh, you can uh, basically, rice is grown in any climate and in almost any environment. So the stressors will be certainly uh, very different. Now, rice has been, uh, you know, as you mentioned, also um, a very huge con uh, consumer of water. But we have been working on a, a different method of growing rice. It is called the system of rice intensification or, or SRI, where we can reduce irrigation water by up to 50%, reduce inputs, chemical inputs, increase soil health and increase yields at the same time. And so it is a method that uh, uh, on, on the one side, assures uh, food security, adapts to, helps to adapt to climate change and reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So it is an agroecological method. Um, so at first you may find it is counterintuitive because it's very opposite of what is usually conventionally done. But when you look closer, it makes uh, really a lot of sense and uh, as 80% um, of all rice farmers in the world are smallholder farmers, that means they grow rice on less than two acres. Um, and for those farmers who are usually limited in, uh, in input resources, uh, et cetera, this method that is depending on just on how you plant it, also it's knowledge-based, is, is very interesting. and. Uh, we have been seeing its benefit in, in uh, 60 countries um, and, um, and, you know, um, so I think it is, it is uh, very important to think about, to step back and think about how can we plant rice differently. We do not need to flood rice anymore. Um, and actually rice doesn't like to be flooded. It really? tolerates flooding. Yes. So, um, we can maybe, if you want to know. You yeah, know, I'd rice. like to know. How, so how do you, does does it require then a more sophisticated irrigation system if you're not flooding it? You know, so you can think about it uh, to uh, as watering rice, like as you water any other crop when the rice plant needs the crop. So flooding has been usually done for two major reasons. One is weed control. Uh, because once the uh, the field is flooded, rice can tolerate um, um, the flooding, and so it can uh, actually it's semi-aquatic, so it can pump oxygen into the roots, and can withstand the flooding. But it doesn't thrive in flooding. Um, weeds weeds will be suppressed. The other reason why rice is is as um, as just mentioned. Um, is that uh, rice uh, is you know is the only crop that can actually be grown in in more flooded and more uh, flooded environments or or clayey soils that tend to be flooded, and so it's the only crop that can produce. So the association of flooding and rice um, is actually something that we really want to get away from, and why? Because the roots, uh, if you think of a any root system, um, the roots need to breathe, you know? So um, if roots are uh, submerged in water, it's not the water that's damaging, but it's, the, it's the, ox the lack of oxygen. And so rice has the ability to pump oxygen into the roots, but that doesn't uh, create healthy big root systems. 
And once you actually reduce the, the flooding, the rice roots can uh, grow deeper and more prolific. That in combination with uh, improving your soil health, improving soil, uh, create aerobic, uh, high organic environments so that the roots can really thrive. Um, then the other part is to reduce the density of planting. So each plant has, has room to grow. And uh, and and uh, so so these are these are some some changes basically opposite of what's what's done in many places in the world um, that actually favor mm. favor the, the plant and uh, help it adapt to climate change because the roots going deeper and um, yeah so let me just read. Yeah, let yes, me just reintroduce you. This is Cornell University Professor of Practice in Tropical Agronomy, Erica Steiger. Professor Steiger talking with us about some of the more sustainable methods of rice growing that are being tried around the world uh, to make uh, rice more resilient to the changing climate, uh, to using new approaches that uh, make the crop more sustainable and more beneficial for local environments. If you have questions, we're at 866-893-5722. George in Redondo Beach asks, is rice a suitable crop for hydro hydroponic growing? And, and could you even do that indoors? Professor Steiger? Uh, yeah, I think, as I mentioned, rice will uh, tolerate uh, to be uh, submerged in water. So I think you can plant it uh, and you can plant there. You can try to plant it indoor, uh, but you can also try to plant it just in a normal uh Part of uh, of soil, and uh, it should also <laughs> be growing as uh, as well. Very good. Uh, Robin Mid Wilshire District says the processing of rice products can be heavily in, heavy in selenium. The state of California shut down operations because of that. I was wondering if your guests could comment on what other states and agencies are doing with selenium from large scale. Uh, rice production. Uh, Whitney Brim DeForest, do you do you have anything to share on that? Um, as an issue? Or, or we uh, don't what the question is, yeah, how other states deal with the selenium issue with processing rice. Do you know? I, I'm actually not aware of that as, as an issue. Yeah, Professor Steiger, are you familiar with that I, at all? I wouldn't. No, I'm not familiar. I'm sorry. Okay. And I can't confirm what our listener, Rob, said. That's just what he said is the reason why we, we don't have the rice process. I'm yeah, I'm sorry? not aware of any rice processors being shut down in California. Okay. At least not in recent memory. All right. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, our producer, Manny, asks, what about uh, wildlife that surrounds where rice is grown? Um, is is the ecosystem at all affected negatively by large-scale rice production. Um, uh, Professor Steiger, can you comment on that? I would I would think, uh, I guess it would depend on, on, on how many chemicals are used. And I think in the U.S. there's very little organic uh, rice production happening. This is actually something I'm working on in the south of the U.S. We're trying to develop organic rice production systems, which is very difficult. But, uh, and I'm not, uh, I think uh, in the U.S., less so than in other countries, uh, organic rice production is very uh, low. All right. So, sense, um, 
will make an impact on 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 surrounding uh, wildlife. Whitney, you were going to say something. Oh yeah, I'm in California. Um, so in our rice systems, um, we're actually part of the Pacific Flyway. So we have migrating waterfowl that migrate through our rice fields um, in the winter time, and it's we're home to roughly between five to seven million uh, ducks and geese over the winter. And the ducks and geese are, are, are rice fields sort of act as what I would call like a pseudo wetland. Yeah. Uh, the, this area was wetlands before rice production started. Um, and so we act as, as basically another stop um, for the birds. And we provide uh, food to the rice that's fallen on the ground as well as some of the weed seeds. And the growers purposely flood their, their fields in the wintertime to maintain that wetland. And also the the, the uh, fields themselves hold a lot of water, so when we get rain like this, uh, they flood naturally as well. Whitney, what what kinds of rice are grown in California? So we actually uh, mostly grow medium grain, um, which is very suitable for sushi, so it's very sticky. So if you've eaten um, sushi in the United States, you've probably eaten California rice. Um, right. We do grow a little bit of other specialty varieties, um, for example, some organic um, and like specialty types, uh, basmati types, which are the more aromatic types, um, as well as some different colored brand varieties. So a lot of different specialty varieties on top of the medium grain that's our most widely grown. All right. Whitney Brim DeForest, thank you very much for being with us, talking about what's happening with rice growing in California. She's Rice and Wild Rice Advisor, UC Cooperative Extension Director in Sutter and Yuba Counties. And our thanks to Cornell University, Professor of Practice in Tropical Agronomy, Erica Steiger. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. We've had plenty of scandals over the years in Hollywood. One of the biggest, though, happened in 1958 when gangster Johnny Stampinato was killed at the home of actor Lana Turner. We'll talk about the Hollywood response to that, what happened in the criminal justice system, and questions that still aren't answered to the full satisfaction of everyone, including Casey Sherman, author of A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theatre Company at the Los Angeles Theatre Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Just a reminder, coming up at approximately 11, 
We'll have the live news conference, Los Angeles officials talking about the damage from the record-setting overnight rain and winds, and what sorts of of, uh, responses are still underway from the storm system. And again, we have a flood warning in effect currently until 3 this afternoon for the Santa Monica Mountains and the Hollywood Hills. April 4th, 1958, and uh, Johnny Stampinato, the gangster, was killed uh, by Lana Turner, the uh, world-famous actress's 14-year-old daughter, uh, and uh, who then later went uh, before a judge and had her life forevermore changed as a result. Casey Sherman has gone back to reinvestigate the killing of Johnny Stompanato and the circumstances which led up to his death. The book that results is titled A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime. Thank you so much, Casey. Good to have you with us today on Air Talk. Hey, great to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the worldwide attention that this case generated. Put it in perspective how huge a deal this story was. Sure. Uh, well, imagine, you know, that Taylor Swift uh, woke up one day and found her, you know, hypothetical, her her gangster boyfriend lying dead on her uh, uh, bedroom floor. That's how big this story was back in 1958. There really was no bigger star in Hollywood at that time, bigger than Lana Turner. And this was the most sensational scandal that really ripped through Hollywood in the first, you know, 50 years of the uh, film industry. And what a, a murder in Hollywood does is it really focuses on the the growth of the movie industry and the growth of organized crime in Hollywood and how both industries ultimately were on a collision course with Lana Turner. It's fascinating for me to read about the gangster Mickey Cohen, for whom Johnny Stampanato worked. Uh, my grandfather knew Cohen quite well. My grandfather was LAPD homicide detective uh, back in the, the 1940s and early 50s. 50s, oh, wow. and so crossed paths often uh, with uh, with Mickey Cohen, and it was fascinating for me to read about uh, what you said was the effort here to essentially extort Lana Turner. Share with us how Stampinato was was um, at the center of this plan. Well, no, it's it's a great question. You know, when I went to go back and look at this case some 60 years later, what struck me was I was wondering how the relationship between movie star Lana Turner and gangster Johnny Stampinato originated. And what I found out was that Mickey Cohen was basically using Johnny Stampinato as the tip of his spear in terms of extorting high profile actors and actresses in Hollywood. And they focused on Lana Turner in 1958 because her career was evolving. She was becoming a force uh, behind the camera. She had just started her own production company. And um, Mickey Cohen thought, okay, let's let's get Lana Turner. Let's put her in compromising positions and let's, uh, you know, bleed her for all the money that we can. And that was, uh, you know, the original plan, kind of a reverse engineered honey trap using Johnny Stampinato as the way into Lana Turner's life. And how did you uncover that? How, how was this determined that um, that's the role that Stampinato was playing with Turner? You know, I mean, I, I, 
I've been an investigative journalist for 30 years. And, you know, my job is to go back and see things that may have been overlooked, you know, in 1958. And there were some correspondence. There has been some, you know, going back and pouring over the, the FBI dossier, so to speak, on Mickey Cohen and Lana Turner and Johnny Stompanato and really kind of connecting the dots. You know, Mickey Cohen, if you, you know Mickey's career quite well, it was a very violent um, career as basically the Al Capone of Los Angeles in the 1940s and early 1950s. But then Mickey Cohen goes away to Alcatraz uh, because of uh, tax evasion, much like his hero, Al Capone. So when Mickey, you know, comes back to L.A., he wants to get as far away from the gangland shootings and the bombings as he can, but he still wants to take advantage of everyday people and the biggest stars in Hollywood. And how he did that was focusing on, you know, uh, you know, the biggest stars in the town who had the most to lose. Originally, their plot was to extort uh, from Janet Lee. Uh, you know, the famous actress uh, who played uh, uh, Marilyn Crane in Psycho. And she did not, um, uh, you know, had no feelings for Johnny Stampanato, but Lana Turner fell into his web. And there, uh, you, you say there are a number of um, images that were recovered, nude images of, of different women. Were were those involved in efforts to extort other women, or or what what was the, what did that involve? Yeah, this was a cottage industry. Um, you know, they 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 had a you know data bank, so to speak, in 1958 of compromising images of well-known women and men uh, that they were using to um, you know extort money from the most powerful players in Hollywood. And Lana Turner, you know, once the Stampinato affair had kind of come to its culmination, Lana Turner was given a role of film that showed her in compromising positions that Johnny Stampinato would put her in. With another woman, Lana was drugged by Johnny, didn't really remember the situation all that well, but there was the imagery that um, she couldn't forget. You also detail, and and this certainly part of it is not new, the extent to which Stampinato physically abused Lana Turner uh, share with us how 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 badly she was she was beaten and threatened. Well, that's a great question, and you know people understand that it was a violent relationship between the two of them, but they don't understand the extent of that violence. You know, Johnny Stampinato beat her physically, uh, tortured her emotionally, and I think when uh, it came time for Johnny Stampinato, Johnny Stampinato to begin threatening the people around. Lana, her young daughter, Cheryl, her mother, Mildred, I think, you know, Lana decided to try to take her life back. I do believe that many Hollywood historians have been kind of looking at Lana the wrong way over 60 years. You know, she's been referred to or remembered as a femme fatale or even a villainess in Hollywood. I don't think she is that at all. I elevate her in this book to her proper position as a feminist icon and really pioneer of the Me Too movement. We're talking with Casey Sherman, author of A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime. We're talking about the killing of Johnny Stampanato in Lana Turner's home. Uh, Cheryl Crane, the daughter of Lana Turner, then 14 years old, said that she did it and, in fact, uh, spent time in state custody before being released later and uh, wrote a book about it uh, back uh, in the mid 1980s 
1980s. I interviewed Cheryl Crane for that book when she wrote her memoir about her experience. We'll continue our conversation with Casey Sherman, an author of A Murder in Hollywood, when we come back in one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. With true crime writer Casey Sherman, author of A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime. We're talking about the killing of mobster Johnny Stompanato at the home of Lana Turner. This goes back to 1958. Cheryl Crane, the then 14-year-old daughter of Turner, uh, admitted to the crime and spent time in state custody before uh, she was later released. And uh, Cheryl Crane took responsibility for this, Casey, but but you suspect she was not responsible for killing Stampanato? Yeah, I honestly believe that uh, Lana Turner killed Johnny Stampanato. So in my book, A Murder in Hollywood, I take the knife out of Cheryl's hands and I put the knife uh, in Lana's hands. And I do this because of the evidence from the crime scene. You know, if you've ever seen the uh, crime scene photos in Lana Turner's uh, home on North Bedford Drive, the one thing that strikes me is how clean it was. This was a crime scene that had been cleaned up before police arrived. And I don't think that Cheryl Crane decided to just suddenly take uh, responsibility for this. I think it was Lana Turner's attorney at the time, a Hollywood fixer named Jerry Geisler, who made the decision for young Cheryl. If Lana Turner had murdered her boyfriend, regardless of how badly Johnny Stampanato had beaten her over the course of a year, that strikes as premeditation. Lana Turner would have been put on trial. Lana Turner would have likely been convicted and could have gotten the death penalty. But by focusing on a 14-year-old girl, Jerry Giesler had convinced Lana and Cheryl that he could win a justifiable homicide um, case for Cheryl, which ultimately he did. You mentioned that Cheryl did spend time in state custody because it was a gamble, whether or not, um, you know, the, the authorities would would believe, you know, Jerry Giesler's version of events, which he relayed to Cheryl and ultimately to Lana. But really what strikes me is there was a wrongful death suit filed by Johnny Stampanato's family that Lana Turner quickly settled uh, before allowing it to go to civil trial. Because if it did go to civil trial, then all of the information would have been um, <clears throat> ready and available for criminal prosecutors to focus on the the actual culprit in the Johnny Stampanato uh, murder, if you will. And that was Lana Turner. But well, I think she did so. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to ask, uh, Casey, what evidence did you find that it was Mickey Cohen who pushed these surviving family members of Stampanato to file that civil suit? Mickey Cohen's own words. You know, Mickey Cohen wrote a memoir later on in his career and um, uh, really goes into detail on this. And what struck me was so much of the information was laid out there for newspaper reporters back in 1958. This case was covered exhaustively and all of those details were, you know, printed at the time. I had gone back and certainly read everything that I could about how this case really evolved after, you know, Good Friday, 1958. Mickey Cohen certainly did not believe that Cheryl Crane had murdered or killed um, Johnny Stampanato. In fact, 
you know, my book details that Mickey Cohen and his thugs were on the hunt for Lana Turner all across Hollywood for, you know, the uh, few weeks, few months after Johnny Stampanato's death. They were either going to kill Lana Turner or throw acid in her face and try to ruin her career. They they believed and they felt felt like it was Lana Turner that killed Johnny Stampanato. We're talking with Casey Sherman, author of A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime. Why would Cheryl Crane, uh, particularly not after her mother's death, um, her mom died in 1995, um, come out and, and say, yeah, actually, I, I took fall for my mother. Why wouldn't she do that? that? That's a question only Cheryl can can answer. I think Cheryl had been, you know, saying or, or revealing the same story, you know, for so long. I think it was another uh, attempt on her part to protect her mother's legacy. I think Cheryl Crane and her mother had a very difficult relationship, you know, that was born out of love and, and, and you know, tragedy. And I think that each loved each other and each tried to protect each other in their own way. Uh, and uh, although it had to sting when uh, the the will that Lana Turner left behind didn't most of the estate go to uh, her her uh, companion, her her uh, caregiver, as opposed to her daughter. Again, yeah, that's one of those uh, you know things you read about. And you, you you wished it just wasn't true, but um, you know I guess it would depend on where they stood with each other at the end of Lana Turner's life as they. It was a an incredibly difficult relationship, and Lana Turner certainly bears, you know, uh, much of the responsibility for uh, Cheryl Crane, as uh, you know, particularly when Cheryl was younger. But I love the fact that Cheryl, you know, got her life together, had a very successful real estate career, was an author, as you mentioned. She did write uh, Detour, which is a very heart wrenching story about her upbringing, and you know, there's a uh, obviously much of it geared toward what happened to Johnny Stampanato, but I don't even think Cheryl Crane knew the extortion plot that was, um, uh, you know, happening behind the scenes against her mother and certainly a lot of the information that I reveal in this book. And what was her response uh, to your reaching out to her? Um, has she had, uh, you know, uh, there was no response. I believe she's in her, you know, late eighties, maybe early nineties right now. Um, and I did not, you know, get a response from her when I did reach out to her. But as I said, she's, you know, told her own version of these events. And I had to re-examine this case. I mean, people confess to crimes they didn't commit every day, you know, and and I've covered many of these cases. But I, I don't look at Lana or Cheryl as villains in this case at all. I look at Johnny Stampanato as the ultimate brute and villain who threatened to not only, you know, end Lana's career, but kill her family. And when he did that, Lana had to take him off the map. Thank you so much for being with us and and talking about your book, Casey. I appreciate it. And I know you're going to be appearing locally with writer Terrence Winter, who's done so much great work uh, on television. Uh, Casey Sherman will be talking with Boardwalk Empire's Terrence Winter, uh, who's also producing a limited series adaptation of A Murder in Hollywood. They'll be in conversation at Book Soup on the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood coming up on February 13th. That's just eight days from today. They'll be there at Book Soup on the Sunset Strip. Terrence Winter with Casey Sherman, author of A Murder in Hollywood. Casey, thanks so much. Really appreciate your joining us and talking about your book. 
Great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Stay tuned. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll have live coverage of the news conference involving local officials as they discuss the damage and ongoing efforts to try and deal with debris flows, uh, landslides, other problems that we've seen, particularly in the hillside communities of the Hollywood Hills and the Santa Monica Mountains. We'll have that news conference for you coming right up. We'll also begin uh, the afternoon broadcast of All Things Considered a little bit early today. That'll be uh, 3.30 instead of its usual 4 o'clock start so that we can give you uh, from Nick Roman all the important developments with our heavy rain here in Southern California. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9. Have a very good day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.